Welcome to the Cyber Firefight Podcast. I'm your host, Renee Taren, the Deputy CISO at Fortinet and author of the book, Fight Fire with Fire, Proactive Cybersecurity Strategies for Today's Leaders. In this Cybersecurity Perspectives podcast, we will talk with a different cybersecurity expert from the book in each episode and discuss valuable perspectives and important takeaways from their individual chapter. Today, I will be talking to two of our our leaders that will be talking about their chapter in Fight Fire with Fire on effective cyber risk management required for broad collaboration. I'm very excited to have two of these contributors here today. First up, we have Maria Thompson. She's a cybersecurity leader that supports the public sector. And we have Suzanne Harton, who is the Chief Risk Officer for Early Warning Services. Thank you so much, first of all, ladies, for being a contributor to the book. And so much for thank you for your insight on um, really how organizations really need to be addressing that, that risk. So thank you so much for uh, contributing into that book. Thank you for having us. So yes, thank you for having us. We're excited to be here. Absolutely. So before we start diving into the chapter, I really want to give our listeners an, an understanding uh, a little bit about your backgrounds and really how you came into the cybersecurity field. So Maria, let's start off with you. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and you know how you came into cyber? Sure, Renee, thank you. Um, my background is a little bit non-traditional, I guess, um, and uh, I'll tie into how Renee and I got to know each other. Uh, I started off really in the Marine Corps. So um, when the Marine Corps, this was years ago, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to date myself by saying what year it happened. When they started to see that cybersecurity or information assurance is what they called it back then, was becoming an increasing um, issue for, uh, for us within the, the Marine Corps, they decided to create this military occupational specialty around uh, protection of networks, protection of data, so on and so forth. And that's really where Renee and I got to know each other. I was one of the first 30 Marines that became part of this group that were uh, focused solely on cybersecurity. Um, since then, of course, I retired after 20 years, but since then I've been in federal organizations. I've been um, operating in security operations centers, um, software integration uh, labs as a uh, various in various cybersecurity roles. Um, did three and a half years at EPA um, over their uh, security operations center on the contracting side. Um, and I was the state chief risk and security officer for the state of North Carolina for six and a half years. So I just recently transitioned to a private sector company where I'm doing the same thing, cybersecurity. So my background has been for quite some time um, in the cybersecurity and risk field. Yes, Maria, and it's been great working with you through the years and, and thank you, you know, for your service and your continued service in, in the public sector. Suzanne, how about you? My journey is a little bit different than Maria's. I haven't had quite the depth in cybersecurity, but certainly a tremendous amount of depth in uh, risk management in general. So my career has also spanned more than 20 years in risk management. And so I have worked with some of the largest financial institutions in the country, Bank of America, American Express, Capital One, and now with Early Warning, which is a uh, consortium owned by seven of the largest banks in the U.S. And so my background coming up is, like I said, more in risk management. I have worked in information security in a variety of roles, but I have also worked in compliance and I have led third party risk management programs, insurance risk uh, programs. Uh, I've been in a number of risk related areas, uh, IT uh, risk, cyber risk. And as I have advanced through my career, uh, I have gotten to roles that have spanned more of those 
disciplines, whereas now I am the chief risk officer, and in my organization, I have not only compliance, third-party risk, privacy, data, and model risk, but also I have the information security organization for early warning services. Great. So between the both of you, I know we have a wealth of knowledge when it comes to um, the cyber risk. And so let's dive into your chapter a little bit. So um, in your chapter, you know, you mentioned the importance of defining organizational risk appetite. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what does that really mean for an organization? I can. So many people have not uh, probably heard the term of risk appetite or risk appetite statement. But we as individuals make risk decisions for ourselves all the time that fit within our own personal risk appetite. So how fast am I going to speed when I'm on the highway if I'm going to speed or maybe I'm not, right? That's a risk decision that you are making against the amount of risk you're willing to take. That's your risk appetite. Companies need to have sort of that same um, decision so that they can all collectively within the company work toward uh, coherence in executing their business strategies. So let me use uh, a pretty dramatic example. Let's say that you are uh, you work for a cruise line. Well, the cruise line would want to have some kind of risk appetite statement, and let's say that their risk appetite statement is we will tolerate zero passengers overboard and lost at sea in a year, versus another cruise line that may say we're going to tolerate two people overboard and lost at sea every year. Well, that will inform the decisions that, that everybody in the company makes. So if I am on one of those cruise ships and I am uh, in charge of passenger safety, it's going to impact maybe how many life vests I have or how often I check those life vests to make sure that they're actually in place and uh, usable. Uh, as the captain, it may drive my decisions about whether I will cruise in not good weather or a little bit even less good weather than that, right? Um, if I am in charge of, of awareness and training for passengers, maybe if I have the zero passengers lost at sea every year is my uh, goal, I'm going to invest more in training my passengers and putting up more signage and posters. And so this is just an example about if a company has a risk appetite statement and has been very clear about how much risk they're willing to take, then everybody in the company can base their decisions on that and understand that we are then all working towards sort of the same level of risk taking and therefore protecting the reputation of the company in the way that the company would like to have happen. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Because I think what you're also saying is that that appetite can change as the company changes throughout its business, then that appetite may grow or decrease um, as the, the, the change in business ebbs and flows. Is that a fair assessment? That is a fair assessment. And so let's think about a risk appetite statement of a financial services company. So they may uh, phrase part of their risk appetite statement in terms of the amount of loss they're willing to take. And so therefore, given economic conditions, things may change. We may be willing to take more loss or less loss. So that is going to be, be um, impact very much or influence the credit decisions we make and the quality of customers that we want to take on as borrowers and so on. So you're absolutely right. There's many factors that will affect a risk appetite statement, and it is not a one and done. So you have to continue to think about the business conditions in which you're operating in the strategic direction of the company. 
Yeah, I'd like to add too that you know it also what comes into the play as far as you know what you made you mentioned about the changes, regulatory changes that creates a situation where you do have to adjust based on what your new current environment is. And I'll tell you that in my experience, I've seen um, within the state and local government um, organizations that this is very hard for them to define. Um, but the realization is they are making a risk decision; they're just not articulating it. They accept a lot of risks and sometimes operational risks, um, and, and they don't have a statement to really balance that. So, yeah, it is definitely something that I think organizations really need to sit down and, and focus on as they establish their overall mission. Yeah, and I do, I do want to emphasize something Maria uh, pointed out because she is absolutely right. Every company, every person in every company is making a risk decision like in almost everything they do. And if you don't have a defined risk appetite statement to know how much risk to take, then you have no idea if you're taking too much or not enough, because if you're not taking enough risk, maybe you're not going to be able to compete in the market, stay current with the market and so on. Yeah. And so not knowing, right, how much risk you're taking as measured against a risk appetite statement, you're still taking that risk. Yeah, and so, you know, one of the questions you know, we often get asked as cyber leaders is, you know, that, that question is, are we secure? And honestly, it's, it's a tough question to answer, if not impossible for it to answer, because the way our environments are constantly changing. So how can we effectively measure the risk to really know what our posture level is? Yeah, that's a great question that many companies struggle with. And I will tell you, in my experience, you can only answer that question at a point in time. <laughs> so whether you are sufficiently secure today, and the answer is yes, you may not be sufficiently secure tomorrow or next week. And so this is something that you need to measure quite frequently. So how do you do it? Well, um, how we do it is that we have a set of key risk indicators or KRIs, and these are metrics that measure a variety of things. And these metrics roll up to answer sub-questions to the key question of, are we sufficiently secure? The sub-questions under that uh, higher level, are we sufficiently secure question are, are we detecting everything that we should? Are we preventing everything that we should? Are we responding and recovering as quickly and efficiently and effectively as we should? And then is our program keeping up, keeping pace with all the changes in the environment? If you could actually know the answer to those four things, if you are detecting, preventing, responding, recovering, and keeping up with the changes, then you would be able to answer the question, are you sufficiently secure? And so let me just give you a couple of examples of the metrics that you might have under each of those questions. So if you are saying, am I detecting everything I should, you probably have a whole set of metrics around like control, effectiveness, vulnerabilities that you've detected and so on. Um, if you are talking about prevention, maybe the attacks that you've mitigated. If you're talking about response and recovery, how quickly are you able to do that? And if you're talking about sustainability of your program, you might be thinking about your investments over time, your skill sets, the number of open roles you have. What you do for each of these metrics is set a threshold. So let's say, because we just talked about risk appetite, your risk appetite, you've decided as a company, is low in the area of cyber risk. And, and I think that most companies would say we don't have a lot of tolerance for risk in uh, the cybersecurity area. And so what you need to do is let's talk about response and recovery. If you decide that low risk equates to being able to respond within 30 minutes, you would set that as your threshold and maybe 
medium is within two hours, and then high is after two hours. Other companies may set that differently. They may say our, our threshold for low risk is to respond within one hour or one day or whatever it may be. And so if you have the thresholds determined of what is low, medium, high risk, or however you want to measure it for each of these KRIs that roll up to those four questions, then they will aggregate the KRIs to answer those four questions and then roll up to that larger one, are we sufficiently secure? Now, I've made that sound kind of easy, but it really isn't because, because trying to understand what are the right set of metrics, it, are the set that you have comprehensive, um, the, it's hard to get that right set and it's hard to also set those thresholds. And so I know that in several companies that I've worked in, as we've struggled with this, we've had to do multiple iterations. And of course, just like you were talking about risk appetite changes over time, the set of metrics and things that you're measuring, those also change over time. Gotcha. So, you know, how should the CISO be engaged in the risk oversight and governance within the organization? Are there, you know, certain committees like, you know, do they need to be part of the business continuity planning team, um, you know, or other groups that the CISO should be engaging with? Yeah, you know, that is a great question because over time, the role of the chief information security officer, I believe, has expanded. And because many companies these days, their business is founded on data and whether that's personal data or proprietary data to the company and they want to keep that secure. Um, I think the role of the, like I said, the CISO has changed. And so yes, engagement in the strategic business decisions uh, and policy making of the company, I think is uh, vital because the CISO needs to help understand that we have the right policies, the right risk appetite statement, the right um, business decisions, because they are helping also to uh, engage on reputational risk, compliance and privacy risk, because in security, there are many compliance uh, requirements these days. Um, they need to be instrumental in resiliency uh, for the company, because, of course, uh, protecting your data is one key aspect of resiliency and other risks, because, like I said, cyber risk is a key component of each of these other risks. So um, if the CISO is um, engaged in uh, any of the governance and oversight committees that are uh, looking at these types of risks, that would be key for the success of the company. Um, and so in my mind, yes, the CISO has to be engaged in many different areas and activities outside of just their sort of department. Now, Maria has probably got experience with that, so she may be able to... Uh, to also add in on this question. No, I, I totally agree with you, um, Suzanne. Very hard to follow that, what you just said. I think you've covered everything, even with um, in my previous role as the risk officer for the state of North Carolina, definitely having that broader reach, having that um, ability to pull in the right teams if they're not necessarily structured under you to make sure that you are, you do have that visibility across your environment um, and, and have a solid um, governance structure in place. Yeah, we've often said that you know cybersecurity is a team sport, and I think that extends into that risk management within the organization. That too should be a team sport because you know a lot of times people look at you know the IT and security teams as you know you own all the risk, and a lot of times you know sometimes these decisions get made outside of our purview. Um, and so, from my perspective, it should be a team sport because sometimes the business owners need to be 
um, held accountable because sometimes they make those choices to accept certain risks. So it's a shared responsibility. Yeah. Yes. And it's the argument Absolutely. that we have every day. Um, it's security is not just for the security team, right? <laughs> Absolutely. It's part of the bigger overall risk within the organization. Exactly. Absolutely yeah. right. You know, and some organizations fall into the trap because um, they take a, a find themselves taking a very tactical approach when it comes to looking at risk. You know, for example, you know, strictly looking at it from a technical aspect. So, you know, only reporting the metrics on, you know, the reports from their vulnerability scans. Um, you know, why is this approach faulty and, and how can we correct this? Well, you know, I think that's because they're very comfortable. You know, a lot of um, IT folks that get into the security uh, discipline, if you will, are comfortable with what the tools can spit out and it'll, it's, it'll tell us what's wrong within our environment. And they're not looking at it from the bigger picture. So it is definitely a, a faulty way of looking at things because you really have to pull back, go up a layer and look at the overall governance structure that you have in place within that organization. You have to look at things like people, processes and technology. Um, Suzanne touched on it in you know, what she previously talked about. You know, when you're talking about the people, you're talking about are you, do you have the right roles in place um, within that organization? Who is accountable for what? Because nothing's worse than when something goes south, no one knows who's responsible. And, and generally speaking, you will go into organizations today, and if you ask specifically, are you, who's responsible if this happens within that organization, you might see people start to point the finger because nobody really knows because it's not been a conversation that they've had. So um, one layer up, you're, you're talking about having a strategy in place, having a solid strategy, mission statement. What are we doing from a security perspective? What is our, our overall um, goal for, to, for securing this environment, securing the type of data that we have? Do we have the right people in place? Are they uh, you know, in the right roles? Who's accountable for what? And then you start talking about really the technologies. What do we have in order to, to prevent, to identify, detect, protect, respond, and recover from, you know, from a cyber incident if something should happen within our environment? And are our teams trained and skilled enough to actually to manage the environment as well as to manage the risk and the, the threats that may come at us? So again, focusing just on the, the tactical pieces of it, the tactical elements around what a tool can tell us is not going to give you the full picture of where the risks are within that environment. And I do believe that what Maria is talking about is critically important because as I was mentioning, understanding that your program is sustainable uh, and can change with the changing environment. And Maria mentioned the training, the people, the skill sets, the strategy, She's absolutely right about that because if your program is not sustainable and can't change with the rapidly rapidly changing environment that we all work in in cyber, then you are going to fail. Yeah, we, we see a lot of organizations um, adopt different technologies, especially because of the pandemic. There's been this uptick, there's a change. Technology has been on the forefront of supporting a lot of the initiatives that have come out because of the pandemic remote workers, so on and so forth. So if you have not gone back and actually dusted off your overall strategy um, and your, your, your overall governance model and figured out where are those gaps that have, you know, that we've opened up because of supporting of this, you know, this new environment that we're working in. If we have not gone back and done our homework and actually closed those gaps, then you're really setting yourself up for failure. Uh, absolutely. 
Um, and one of the things you guys, uh, you know, have both talked about and the importance of, you know, working together as a team across the organization, it does, takes collaboration, it does, takes the people process and technology. Um, and one of the things you often have talked about is the importance of information sharing. And it's so important when, when managing the risk. And can you talk to you know, the listeners, tell them a little bit why that is so important in today's environment? So, you know, I, I'd like to jokingly say that information sharing is my middle name sometimes because I always, I'm always beating the drum on information sharing. I think so often in the past, we've always held our information close hold because we we're afraid of uh, maybe looking, being looked at negatively if, if we identify there's a gap in our environment. Um, but the, the, the fact of the matter is the way that the, the speed of which the cyber landscape is changing requires us to actually share more often and as fast as we can. And this is not necessarily to identify the specific gaps that you have in your environment, but really sharing those things like the types of threats that you're seeing coming at you, because the more that we're able to share, the better that we're able to protect our environment overall. Yes, in some cases, there may be a sacrificial lamb, somebody may fall victim, but that doesn't mean that we all have to go down um, you know, that same path. Uh, information sharing does so much for, for the, the cyber uh, field, if you will. When you think about the knowledge, skills, and abilities that you can build from sharing that, you know, sharing those uh, types of threats, how we've mitigated them, how you can protect yourself from them. Uh, we're dealing right now with most organizations are dealing with a log4j vulnerability. Uh, and I know that there are organizations out there that are scratching their heads wondering, how do I approach this? How do I mitigate? How do I implement something like zero trust that may be able to isolate those environments that are, uh, you know, that we can't patch? Because we know that there's vendor solutions out there that may not be able to, or, or it could impact our, our operational capabilities if they were patched or, some, you know, if we messed with that environment due to their legacy nature. But we tend, you know, there are organizations out there that tend to think that they're in it alone. And I think information sharing helps to bridge that gap where they understand that there are other organizations out there that are in the same boat that have maybe conquered that uh, specific uh, discrepancy or dis um, vulnerability that they were dealing with within their environment. So again, it, it helps to build that knowledge base. It helps to build trust. It, it creates a more collaborative in, uh, environment. Cybersecurity is a team sport. It has to be private, it has to be public, it cannot be one or the other. And, and every documentation that you're seeing now coming down, whether it's from the Cyberspace Solarium uh, Committee is heavily focused on information sharing. We've had the, the Cybersecurity uh, Information Sharing Act in 2015. You know, again, this is, is, it's a recurring theme because we know that it's necessary. We know that we need to do it. And we know that we need to do it um, with the idea that we're protecting our environment, but we're also doing better for the greater good. Absolutely. So the one question that I often kind of get asked by organizations, um, you know, we talk a lot about, and we hear a lot of more, more play in the industries now uh, about the cyber insurance. And so can cyber ins insurance from your perspective solve all of our problems? Sure, no. <laughs> uh, I, you know, that would be the silver bullet that everyone would be looking for. Um, and we would just have to go home, right? No, unfortunately it is not. I do believe, and I'll tell you, um, from a personal perspective, I've gone through the five stages of understanding. I'll call it the five stages of understanding from, from my standpoint when it came to the cyber insurance. Uh, when I first heard of it years ago, 
I thought to myself, I was more adverse. I was like, I, I don't think we need it. We, you know, why don't we invest more in our infrastructure and our capabilities to protect our environment? But as I've come to understand the bigger picture, I realized that cyber insurance really is a tool in your toolkit that you can use to help you mitigate those risks within your environment. But it is not the end all be all because there are other gaps that are going to happen. You're going to have to identify and mitigate other things that the cyber insurance policy may not cover. And then now, because of the um, increase in ransomware attacks, a lot of organizations are struggling to be insurable. So you cannot no, you no longer rely on just cyber insurance as the, you know, the uh, I guess the parachute to help you uh, escape and to recover from an organization because you may not even be able to to uh, become insurable because of the cost associated with it. I, I am pleased to see, though, that the cyber insurance market has changed and that they're requiring more validation of security capabilities in place versus, you know, in the in the past where it was a more of a, a self-assessment of your environment security posture. Uh, so I, I think it's driving um organizations to be better uh, secure and, and taking the right steps, best practices as they implement things. But is it the only thing that they should be focusing on? No, it should not. Gotcha. All right. Well, Maria, Suzanne, um, I can't thank you enough for being uh, contributors and, and participating in the project, you know, fight fire with fire, uh, proactive strategies for today's leaders. Um, and thank you for, you know, your inspiration and your uh, leadership um, as, as women and as cyber uh, experts in our fields. Um, and so again, thank you for your, your insights and your collaboration uh, on this effort. Thank you, Renee. It's been a pleasure. If you want more information on Fight Fire with Fire, go to our blog at ftnt.net slash cyber firefight.